Scott Meslow is a senior editor at The Week magazine and a writer and critic for publications including GQ, New York Magazine, and The Atlantic. Scott is a long-standing fan of romantic comedies and enjoys watching them with his wife, their daughter, and a rescued dog they named after Matt Mickelson. From Hollywood with Love is Scott's first book. Now, Scott, I was curious, was there a film that sort of got you going as being a fan of the genre? Yeah, I mean, conveniently enough for me, uh, the start of my book is also my first and favorite romantic comedy, which is uh, When Harry Met Sally. So that is your number one. Yeah, I mean, as much as I hate to be a cliche, I do think that is about as perfect as a modern rom-com can get. <laughs> I don't think it's cliche, because I'd have to agree with you, to be honest. <laughs> I think it's about my favorite of the modern ones as well. There's just nothing to dislike about it. It is perfectly constructed and perfectly performed. <laughs> No, it's, well, it's actually, that's, uh, the, I was going to be speaking about that in, in a, a question I wanted to ask you. That is a movie which you mentioned, and looking back on it now, uh, you know, it's the first, like, 12 or 14 minutes, I think you say, as we all know, takes place in a car, two people talking. And it got me to thinking about, fast forward a few years later with You've Got Mail, um, which, to my memory, was the first one to sort of introduce how the things that we have in technology now, cell phones, text, and everything, sort of affect courtship. Uh, courtship is different now than it, than it was then. Uh, so my question to you is, um, what are your thoughts on how these changes affect how, how courtship is represented? And we can compare it like when Harry Sally, which would begin, which really begins with the dialogue of two people face to face, and then fast forward to say, for example, a movie like Friends with Benefits, which, you know, the first 10 minutes of that is very much text and cell phones, and the film itself just moves at a, at a much faster pace. Uh, do you have any comments on that? Yeah, it's always really interesting to watch how film in general responds to kind of changes in technology, and I think rom-coms especially because they are so character-driven, and I mean, they are talking about a subject as universal as falling in love and getting together, but the way that kind of whatever's happening in the world gets in our way. You Cut Mail is such a funny example of that because it's, you know, at the time it was so forward thinking in terms of this is where things are going. Like you're going to email people and right. big box Barnes and Noble type stores are going to kill the little bookstores. And it's like, that all feels like a period piece now. <laughs> like none exactly. of those things. Now all of our dating is, you know, at least, you know, the younger generation approach to dating is all on technology and everyone buying books on Amazon and Barnes and Noble is in trouble. It's, but to, to kind of situate a love story in the middle of all of those cultural shifts, uh, I think that's kind of the fun and challenge of trying to make a modern, relevant rom-com. Mm -hmm. Now, Scott, you, right now we're in this period of COVID where, you know, the theaters have been reopened since the summer. And so far, the older audience seems to be staying away from, from the theatrical experience. And a lot of the movies that are being pitched as Oscar contenders, these mid-budget serious films are not doing well. Will that have an impact on what romantic comedies go into production? What What is being planned for, say, a couple of years from now? Do you have any feeling about that? Yeah, I think there's definitely a, there's definitely a truth to what you're saying in terms of the, the rom-coms that the studios will get into. Um, I don't think it's any accident that Crazy Rich Asians is kind of the big studio rom-com in the past few years, and that that movie is really built around other things on, among other things on spectacle where, yes. 
you've got, you know, you've got these gorgeous, you know, lavish sets and, you know, locations. Um, and I think next, next month's, uh, Marry Me comes out. Um, and that's another, you know, it's a J.O. Owen Wilson rom-com on a pretty grand scale. You know, it opens yeah. like this huge set piece of her at this, you know, the, this giant, giant concert. Um, you know, later this summer, we've got Sandra Bullock and Channing Tatum essentially doing a remake of Romancing the Stone, where it's a very hybridized rom-com action comedy. And I think at least for what the studios are interested in, as audiences trend towards kind of, it needs to be an event to bother to go to a theater. Uh, I think yeah. rom-coms will trend in that direction as well. Scott, I really enjoyed your uh, chapter on Pretty Woman. I was having grown up in the in the 80s and 90s. That was very much uh a zeitgeist, not these zeitgeist rom-com of, of sort of my formative years. Um, and I have to say, you actually made me, it's a movie that I know very well, seen a, seen a number of times, but you kind of made, wrote that chapter in such a way that made me step back and look at that movie uh, sort of from the outside. And you see all the reasons why it's sort of surprising, uh, first of all, that it works so well, but it also made me think, you know, you had mentioned that this was a Disney film. And, you know, we're talking about a movie where, you know, rich white billionaire picks up a, uh, you know, Hollywood Boulevard hooker, which doesn't seem very Disney-esque. But then the fact that you have this sort of fairy tale love story ends with a happily ever after, but begins uh, with sort of suggested oral sex before even a kiss. Um, my question is, we got Joe and I uh, were talking about this the other day and just sort of as a, as a fun, what if hypothetical question, uh, how would, how do you think Pretty Woman would be received today if it was put out as like a major studio release, uh, you know, where they, where they were spraying it everywhere. This is the movie to see. And uh, let's say that nobody knew who Julia Roberts was sort of at the, at the time, you know, she's very not, not a famous star prior to this. If that were to happen today, do you think that that film would be embraced? Would it come and go unnoticed? Do you think it would be slammed? Would it be hugely controversial? That's a good question. I mean, I, I think for starters, there is zero chance that movie gets made. So, <laughs> so the hypothetical Well, that's what I was thinking as well, to be yeah. honest. Yeah. There's, it is so, it would either be a, kind of a darker drama the way it was originally intended to be, or they would completely lose the escort angle in one way or another. And it would be, she'd have some job that he was paying her to, to stay with him, but it wasn't, it wasn't sex work. It was, you know, something, something much lighter that, that wouldn't kind of bring any grittiness into it whatsoever. I think, I think we're kind of in a movie landscape and part of it is that movie was the, the final release of that movie is so not what they intended to make when that, you know, when, when J.F. Lawton sat down and wrote that script and so mm -hmm. you kind of couldn't plan that movie. Um, but, but even the, the edginess of it would, I think would be completely sanded off. Um, but, but if it came out as it was, I still think it'd be a hit. I mean, there's a reason it's a crowd pleaser. There's a reason it, you know, they wanted to bring it to Broadway just a few years ago and update mm -hmm. a few things in it. I, and, and Julia Roberts is a star. Like, you know, if that was her really breakout debut in, and I think in any, in any generation, she would really be magnetic to audiences. So I, it would certainly be a culture war. I'd love to see the articles that were written. It, it really, uh, you, you really made me see a movie that I knew very well to see it a completely different way. And again, it, I was fascinated too. I didn't realize that it had begun as such a dark story. I mean, another thing, there's, you know, essentially an attempted rape in there. Oh, yeah. Sort, you know, and, and now looking through it from a modern day lens, it would, I think it'd be fascinating to just see it with completely fresh eyes and see how it would be received. I, I would I would love to, and I, I think it's interesting to watch kind of the next generation of filmgoers discover that movie and go like, whoa, this is you know, it's not really what you expect based on based on the cultural idea, but it is it is quite a bit darker. Right. Yes.
One thing, too, Scott, that you write about in the book uh, very uh, eloquently is how this genre really was the main platform to launch some of the biggest female stars of that period, you know, starting with Julia and then Meg Ryan and then Sandra Bullock. And especially in the case of Julia and Sandra Bullock, they were able to evolve their careers beyond romantic comedy. But that was really the basis of their stardom in the beginning. That's where we sort of fell in love with them. I mean, do you think with sort of the challenges of today with rom-coms, I mean, where where will the, the new stars of that, female stars of that caliber come from? It's really interesting to watch to me what, what kind of the next generation of stars did with rom-coms. You've got actresses like, you know, Emma Stone, Jennifer Lawrence, this kind of next generation of actresses who made movies. They did do rom-coms, you know, and they, they made very good and crowd-placing rom-coms. Um, yes. You know, Silver Linings Playbook, massive Oscar-nominated hits. Um, yeah, Crazy Stupid Love, a delightful movie and a huge hit yeah. that has Emma Stone yeah. in it. Um, so those movies existed, but it felt like at the time it was a little more, uh, it was almost a crucible for a young actress to go through in the 90s where she had to star in a rom-com and you know, audiences would fall in love with her and maybe that would open up a different lane. Whereas now it feels like audiences are much more willing to accept actresses just kind of jumping all over the map in terms of stuff, you know, where, where Emma Stone can in very rapid succession do Crazy Stupid Love and then a Spider-Man movie and then be in Birdman and be up for an Oscar. It, and yeah. you can do all that within the span of a year or two and audiences don't really blink at it. Um, so, mm-hmm. so I would like to think it means that more variety is open to actresses. I, I'm not convinced that's always the case in what is obviously a pretty difficult industry, but it's at least a hopeful sign that you don't get quite so pigeonholed. Mm-hmm. Yes. The sentence in your book that really struck me as being sort of one of the key sentences was where you write, Hollywood would rather make one Avengers Endgame than 71 My Big Fat Greek Weddings. I mean, that's sort of shocking to think that you could bet on 71 possible movies that would click, and yet Hollywood seems to prefer to put all the money on that one project. Yeah. I mean, it really is kind of unbelievable, and I think that's where that's where you've really seen the streamers step up where Netflix so clearly went, there's a hole in the market and knowing that they have, you know, access to data that we can't even imagine. They clearly looked at what people were streaming and went, Oh yeah, we put up pretty woman on here and somebody watched it six times last week, the same way that people would wear out their VHS tapes. And so at some point it's very lucrative for them to say, look, if the studios aren't going to collect the money that's just sitting here, we're going to, make a bunch of rom-coms really fast and we're going to have them streaming. You know, you'll you come home on a Friday night, you want to watch something light after a hard week of work and we've got the movie just waiting for you. And I think that's, that's where the streamers have really said, we'll take the money if you don't want it because it's, it's clearly there. Mm-hmm. There's an idea with rom-coms, and in fact, there's sort of a, and you touch on this in the book as well, on, on snobbery for a number of different reasons. It can come from a, a number of different things that people just have this snobbery towards it. There are a lot of actors and actresses that have this aversion to it, that it's not, you know, somehow not, you know, artistic enough or whatever. There's some snobbery rooted in misogyny, I think. Um, at a very basic level, you know, the idea of fall in love, get married, live happily ever after is not necessarily reality anymore. It's not even really what a lot of people in the marrying age right now are even seeking. Uh, do you think that there will always be a place for the traditional trajectory in, in romantic comedies moving forward? Or is that storyline sort of going to be deemed old fashioned from now on? 
I think it's fun to see people find ways to kind of tweak and twist it to try to modernize it. I don't think that's always been done very successfully. There's a, there's a chapter in the book where I cover friends with benefits and no strings attached, um, mm-hmm. which I think are actually two perfectly enjoyable rom-coms. But those yeah. movies kind of came with the promise of we're really going to get into how young people date. And it's going to be, you know, <laughs> the casual hookups are okay. And, you know, and, and but, but in the end, those movies really are about a traditional monogamous relationship. The those yeah. characters turn out to be wrong about what they want. And what, what they really want is the same thing that rom-coms have been about for forever, uh, to, to be with a single partner and presumably live happily ever after. It's sort of uh, different, totally different means to the same end, right? I exactly. mean, and you even mentioned how Friends with Benefits sort of sets you up as a, this is not where we're going, this is not the modern thing, but it has a very, very much sort of tongue-in-cheek, uh, very self-aware ending right. that was very romantic comedy. Yep. And I... And I like that they kind of get meta and joke about it, but at the same time, it, they're still doing the thing, you know? They're still doing yeah. the same ending that we've seen over and over again. I would be yeah. more interested in, like, like what does, like, a, an open relationship or non-binary rom-com look like if someone really commits to that? I don't, I don't think that's been made, certainly not in a major way. Um, there, are, there are indies that sort of flirt with that, you know, with, with doing kind of a non-traditional relationship. Um, I'd like to see someone try it, let alone pull it off. Yeah. Do you, uh, your, the book is very much about the modern rom-com. Do you have any love for, or do you see any connection to the past, you know, say the screwball comedies of the, of the thirties and forties? Do you have an affinity for those? And do you, you know, how much of the modern rom-com do you think draws upon those future generations of movies? Oh yeah. I mean, I, my, my love for rom-coms goes all the way back. I'm a, I'm a real Shakespeare nerd too. So like, right. well, it goes I, all the way back. Yeah. The tropes <laughs> to this genre. I mean, you, you, I, I would just as halfway sit down and watch his girl Friday right now, but I do think in addition to kind of just the basic beats of, I mean, there, there's a reason that this is just kind of a, a universally satisfying story structure. There's an arc to relationships that is very satisfying. Um, yeah. but I love, I mean, another, another one of the books I, or the movies I cover in the book is how to lose a guy in 10 days. Um, yeah. And part of why I like that movie so much and part of why I included it is it is so clearly a throwback to the screwball comedies where it is right. the plot is so ludicrous in a way that like at the time critics kind of talked about how contrived it was. And it's like, yeah, of course, they're doing that on purpose. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know? Like they're, they're doing that because that's what was fun about those movies. You know, if you're going to do right. rockets and door stacing, it's they're, they're contrived on purpose. And that's that's because you can situate a battle of the sexes by being sort of stylized about it. Right. Nothing more contrived than it happened one night. And it's right. <laughs> and nobody, everybody agrees that's a classic. Nobody talks about how ridiculous bringing up baby is. It's right. Like, well, yeah, yeah it's, as ludicrous there. as it gets. Now, imagine if that was made today, you know. Right. Uh, and, yeah. So it's, that's one of the ways that I think rom-coms were really unfairly dinged in the 90s, 2000s where it's, you can, you can do, be kind of cheeky about this stuff. And, and you, it doesn't mean you don't know what you're doing. Often it means you do. Well, you know, Scott, one of the chapters I really love because it's one of my favorite rom-coms is the one on my best friend's wedding because you really point out how even though it was a big hit, you know, it was really kind of an experimental rom-com in that you're taking probably the most popular actress of that moment, Julia Roberts, and you're putting her in a story where she's basically acting like a villain, trying to prevent the marriage of these two people. And, and yet they found a way to make it work. You point out how that last minute reshoot with her gay friend, Rupert Everett, really saved the movie. I, I don't think that movie gets enough credit for really taking huge chances. 
Oh, I agree. I mean, to me, that is that is a personal favorite of mine, and and one of the really on multiple levels, I think, a really underrated rom com. Even though it was a hit, because I think it was hugely subversive at a time when it really didn't have to be. You, yeah. you, that movie did not need to take the, the risks it did, and for that matter, Julia Roberts certainly didn't need to take those risks. It, yeah. You know, she is she's quite literally. I mean, there's a there's a second level on which that movie plays where she's inviting her potential box office rival to a role of startup. I mean, to, yes. to start mm-hmm. off the Cameron Diaz in that movie and then to have Cameron Diaz be the one who gets chosen and, you know, kind of gets, gets the moment in the spotlight. I mean, that's, that's a pretty and is even movie. really even the sweeter, the more likable character. Cause I have to say that. in, in, you know, I have to be completely honest. I remember in seeing that I was like, I, I'm not sure that I like Julia Roberts' character in this in this thing, you know. And I kind of struggle with that movie, to be honest. Uh, yeah. But to your point, um, it, it was quite a risk on uh, on Julia Roberts' part. You sort of indicated that there it might have been a little bit touchy and difficult on the set. Even I don't want to, you know, I don't, I don't want to. Uh, you know, conjecture on, on what happened between those two actresses. I'm sure it was fine, but I think he did make some sort of indication that it wasn't all necessarily easy for them to, to work together under the circumstances of those characters. Yeah, I, I think that's a fair characterization. I think there was, I mean, that was, that was a shoot where there was some disagreement. There were, there were about the direction of the movie itself. There were certainly reshoots that were very much required, particularly at the ending. And, and I think all the actors knew there, there was a little bit of a swing happening here. You know, Cameron Diaz was not necessarily the first person in line for that role. Um, Julia mm-hmm. Roberts had preferred Drew Barrymore for it, um, yeah. who I think also could have been very good in it. Um, although I, I love the movie so much, I wouldn't want to mess with anything. But, but you, can, you can see the uh, P.J. Hogan, who directed it, really wanted Russell Crowe for the male lead. I mean, that's a, yeah. that's a movie mm-hmm. that came together in really interesting ways. Yeah. Uh, you know, too, Scott, the thing I really liked about the movie, and you kind of get into this, is it showed you that a happy ending in a romantic comedy could be about a strengthened friendship. Mm-hmm. You know, and that that's a, a happy ending for Julia Roberts in that movie. She realizes how important this collaborator, writer, friend of hers is. Yeah. And I, it really is one of those things where it's, it's fascinating to me that that wasn't the original ending. Uh, yes. You know, that's because it's just, it's perfect. It, it sews up the themes of the movie perfectly. She has, she has been chasing this guy and really they weren't right for each other. He really did have someone else he should be with. And the guy who has been there is her platonic best friend. And yes. that's who she should be spending the night with. And it's enough of a beat just to go, I'm with a person I love tonight and I'll figure out the rest of my life later. That is, that is a beautiful grace note for rom-com to go out on. I agree. I thought it would, you know, the, we've all heard just the fact that any get, movie gets made, given how expensive it is to do and all these things, you know, they, they say by the time they finally make it to the screen, it's sort of a miracle in itself. But the fact that a romantic comedy, and I think this can be said of those more than any others, that they work and that they succeed and that they become classics, you can have the best director, you can have the best script, you can have, the, you know, it can look beautiful and everything. You can even have great, brilliant actors, but if they don't have that chemistry, that you're dead. And I, I, you kind of you pointed that out, but I just find that interesting. You can still have two brilliant Oscar-winning actors opposite each other, but if they don't have that spark or that chemistry, it ain't going to work. And you can even have really good chemistry in a movie that otherwise wouldn't be all that great. But it's really good because of the chemistry. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and it's and it's a gamble. I mean, the number of people I talked to who said they really didn't know till they were on set if it was going to work, and sometimes yeah. in the edit, where you know there there are moments like uh, like when Julia Roberts and Richard Gere met for Pretty Woman, where it was yes. clear that that was going to work. But there are other times when 
you know, they, the actors are on set and it's, it's not clear that it's gelling. And then you get, you get the right scene or you get the right cut or they start doing improv and you go, Oh, this is something is happening here. This is actually going to pay off. Mm-hmm. Scott, do you think licorice pizza qualifies as a modern romantic comedy? That's a good question. Uh, it's, it's recent enough that it's not in the book. So it's one that I hadn't put through my little test. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I, the thing is, it's clearly a romance. To me, it's the question of whether or not that movie is on the right knife's edge of comedy or drama. I mean, yes, it's pretty yes. close. Yes. I mm-hmm. would lean yes, but, um, but you, could, you could probably talk me the other way if we talked about it long enough. Because you well, I like your definition that. of it, too, and in saying that, you know, and I'd never heard this articulated this way, but to decide if something is a romantic comedy or just a comedy, or if you take the, the love story out of it, do you still have a movie, correct? Yeah. I'm paraphrasing, exactly. but yeah. No, that's exactly right. And, and it's part of where a lot of movies aimed at women get characterized as rom-coms in a very sexist and incorrect way that, you know... People, people talk about stuff like The Devil Wears Prada or Miss Congeniality, which are great movies, but they are comedies with romantic subplots. The main thrust of that movie is not about whether or not she falls in love. Yes, yes. The thing about Licorice Pizza that I liked was it's, sort, it's a little bit in the vein of My Best Friend's Wedding, where to me, you know, a lot of people got hung up on uh, it's a relationship between a 25-year-old and a 15-year-old. But to me, the movie's really about them becoming very good friends. Yes, agree. I mean, there's for for what is you know a romance, quote unquote. There's not there's not a lot of love. It's, no. Love is more complicated than that. You have a sort of only nothing is ever consummated. Right, exactly. Yeah. And so yeah. it's 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 why it's as much a coming of age movie at the same time, where it's it's people sort of discovering themselves and the way of the world and all that through their kind of unique relationship with each other. I thought that was the charm of it, actually, is that it was kind of complicated. It was a little bit difficult to, for you to wrap your head around, first of all. But that, to me, made it more interesting, and, and it made it different than a lot of other movies where you're like, I can see exactly where this is going. I didn't, I didn't know where that was going. And even after I saw it, Joe and I talked about it after we both saw it, and we even had to kind of talk about it a little bit, didn't we, where it was like, yes. well, should we have been uncomfortable about that? No, I don't yes. think so, but some people are. Right. <laughs> Uh, one last thing, Scott, the, you know, one of the things that I've heard has most impacted, you know, American film in the last, I don't know, 20 years is the growing reliance of Hollywood on foreign markets. And you even mentioned it at one point that there are sort of domestic issues that are at the heart of many romantic comedies that they don't really travel so well. Mm-hmm. And yet, and yet, you also point out that remakes of American comedies have been hugely successful all over the world. That they do their own versions. I mean, do you think that has contributed to like Hollywood not being as keen on big star vehicle romantic comedies? I do think that's conventional wisdom and accepted wisdom. I'm not convinced uh-huh. it's correct wisdom. Having having kind of crunched the numbers myself, I think. Yep. Part of what we're discovering in general is that, I mean, and this works cross-culturally, it's happening just as much here, there's, there's this kind of idea that it needs to be situated in the culture where you're showing it or it won't resonate as well. And I just, I don't know, Squid Game was the biggest show on Netflix last year, like, you know, and it, it's, you, you just start to say, what's a more universal theme than love? Uh, if, you, if you kind of put this stuff out, and, you know, Hollywood is always a crapshoot in terms of it needs to be good, it needs to be marketed the right way, it needs, you know, there's a lot that goes into making something a hit, but I think they give up a little too fast. I don't, I don't see any reason that these movies couldn't translate cross-culturally. And if, if you need to go the extra step of, say, 
remaking my best friend's wedding and other cultures, which they have multiple times. Yeah, it's been a hit every time. It's it's not that much harder to make to make kind of the, what's universal about these stories resonate. I agree. I agree. I, I think I think love, romance, marriage. You know, I mean, it's one thing that virtually everybody on the planet has in common. Yeah. Yeah, well, as you say, Shakespeare knew about it, and I suppose the Greeks knew about it even before that. So it's, it's made it this far. It's probably not. Uh, if it's made it this far, it's probably not going to die completely. In fact, as yeah. you point out, very much so. It's uh, it's on an uptick right now. Um, yeah, I think, I think I hate to spoil my ending, but I don't think we're at the end of the rom com as the book ends. Right. What's going to be interesting to me, Scott, when the book comes out is people who will say, oh, you didn't put this movie in, you didn't mm-hmm. put that movie in. Because like one movie that I thought was interesting that also kind of went against the grain was that one that Wendy Wasserstein wrote, The Object of My Affection. Oh, sure. Mm-hmm. But I can yeah. see where it didn't fit into what you were talking about. Yeah, and that's, I mean, the, the simple answer to which movies made it in and didn't were just like, it was just a really long list and it was really hard. <laughs> you know, I, I probably started when I, when I really first started mapping out this book, I, I probably came up with a list of about 70 or 80 movies. And, and then I just kind of winnowed down. And part of what I was looking for was how much of the Venn diagram can I fill? You know, if I, if I do a chapter on Judd Apatow and knocked up in 40 year old version, then I'm also kind of covering the rise of all of these bro romantic comedies yeah. like Wedding Crashers. Yeah. And, yeah, and so. So it really became how much of the board can I cover and, and also who, who's available for interviews? Who can I, you know, which yeah. stories haven't really been told? Uh, but it was hard. I mean, I, every, I have to say it was, it was very funny. You, I, you had a chapter where you sort of juxtaposed the careers of Dane Cook and Ryan Reynolds. Oh yeah. But that was really interesting, but I hope you, you get a kick out of this. It's funny. One of the, I've seen most of the movies that you had mentioned, but one of them that I hadn't seen was Good Luck Chuck. And about four nights ago, I'm sitting alone with my cat on the sofa going through a Netflix. Oh, I should find something. And that came up and I was like, oh, I'll, I'll watch that because I literally knew nothing about it. I had no idea. <laughs> so after reading your book, and I, I probably don't have to say anything else about Good Luck Chuck for anybody that's seen it, including yourself, obviously. But uh, yeah, of all the ones that were mentioned, the one that I saw after having read your book, regrettably, was Good Luck Chuck. Yeah, I, if, if that's the influence my book had, I, we're in trouble. I know. I, I, <laughs> probably the only reader you have that'll tell you that, but uh, I thought that was... <laughs> yeah, we, we, talk, we talked about that, Scott, and I, that just sort of was one of those ones I just thought, what were they thinking? It was so yeah. crude and had sort of a softcore porno thing, and I thought, I can't imagine a worse movie to take a date to. Yep, but it is, it's a fascinating test case in terms of, like, you know, people kind of slag off Apatow for, you know, for some of the raunchiness. Absolutely. And you go, look, that's when it's properly calibrated. When it is not properly calibrated, you get a movie like Good Luck Talk. <laughs> right. See how quickly this can go off the rails. Well, this yeah. is what we're talking about. There's everything that, that what makes these things work and what doesn't is so many fine lines, isn't it? It really is. Yeah, and it's and it's part of why it's so frustrating that rom coms have been pretty routinely underrated because it is it is some deft filmmaking and if it is not there you cannot cover it up easily. It it really takes it it, it it it's so apparent whether or not there's the chemistry, whether the writing is there, whether it's edited properly. It's they're, they're movies that really rely on a certain set of rhythms. Yes, right. yes. Which is a shame why they get so dismissed, you know, because I think in, in a lot of respects, they're probably the hardest thing you can make. Comedy's harder than anything anyway. I, 
when I was doing interviews for the book, some of the, I, you know, I've interviewed plenty of filmmakers over my career in entertainment journalism, and some of the sharpest analysis of directorial choices came from directors who did rom-coms that I, yeah. you know, that I talked to for this book, you know, sitting, sitting and talking for weddings and a funeral with Mike Newell and figuring out what he did with that script. Unbelievable. What, what a talent. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. I'm just going to say that, you know, I, to wind it down, I, we appreciate you taking this time. Oh, truly, my pleasure. It was a blast. It was a great book, Scott. Such a pleasure to read it and such an honor to speak with you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Take care. Thanks. See you guys, too. Bye-bye.